This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 66, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I am your host and co-founder, Nolan Martin, with me today. As always, my good friend, colleague, and mentor, Aram. Aram, how are you doing today, sir? Well, I'm, I'm great, Nolan, and I'm, I'm excited for today's episode. Uh, as folks may or may know, not know, you and I are both married to uh, medical professionals. Uh, we, both, we both are married to nurses. Um, and so it's amazing to me how often the topic of uh, negotiation and, and medicine and its application in the medical field comes into my classroom. And as I was poking around listening to some of the other great podcasts that our colleagues in the field have came across today's guest, who is both physician and negotiation expert, I said, who better to have on to talk about kind of this, this nexus of where medicine and negotiation fall than uh, Dr. Linda Street. So let me give, let me give Linda's bio and then uh, welcome Linda to the show. So Dr. Linda Street, is a board-certified maternal fetal medicine specialist and life coach who focuses specifically on physician negotiations. Linda is the founder and CEO of Simply Street MD Negotiation Coaching, where she helps female physicians take charge of their lives and negotiate for the salary they deserve, helping women physicians ask for and earn millions more in compensations. She lives and breathes to close the gender gap. A highly sought after speaker, Linda has spoken at multiple conferences and hosts the highly ranked Simply Worth It podcast, helping physicians get the compensation packages they want, deliver great care, and stay in practice longer. Having listened to a number of Linda's episodes, I highly recommend uh, them to our listeners. Regardless of whether you're a practicing physician or not, take the time to add Linda to your listening routine, please. I'll add that Linda is an army brat, lives in a community with a large military base, and has worked with military doctors transitioning out of the service. For that, Linda, we are very grateful as two veterans ourselves. And Linda, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank y'all for having me. I have to live up to that lovely bio. No doubt that you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Perhaps we could start by talking a little bit about your journey. How did you become a doctor? And more specifically, how does a maternal fetal medicine specialist get into the world of negotiation? Yeah, so the how you became a doctor was really this interesting combination of interests in being 18 years old and asked to decide what you want to do when you grow up, which I think is a really <laughs> fascinating thing we do culturally. I'm like, what did 18-year-old me know about anything? Yeah, we thought we knew everything. <laughs> I thought I knew everything. That's right. <laughs> so I had an interest in science and genetics and ended up using that to get a bachelor's in genetics and then went on to medicine because I was like, okay, now what do I do with this? I am a little bit of a social human, so sitting in a lab all day was not my ideal for spending the rest of my life. And so medicine felt like a great fit where I could actually use that knowledge to help people and interact with humans all day. So that kind of spilled into that. I went into obstetrics and gynecology and maternal fetal medicine in particular because there's a lot of genetics and embryology. And I got to be a nerd and interact with humans and help, 
So it was a nice combination of both. And then the negotiation actually came from doing a lot of dumb things myself. So I think a lot of us end up becoming the person we wish we would have had. And so my first job after 15 years of training was a little bit of a hot mess. And I found that my ability to not negotiate really put me in that position and, or my inability to negotiate, I guess, rather. And so I developed the skill set through just a series of events and found that it was really helpful for me. So part of it was really from a mindset piece. I approached my negotiation with my boss from a very like tug of war place initially, and obviously was terrified to do that because I was this junior faculty member with very little gravitas as far as my position in the hierarchy of academic medicine. And here was somebody who was known to be very intimidating in and out of the OR and had decades of experience. So how am I supposed to go against them and ask for money? Because I found out my male partner who was senior to me was making $150,000 more a year because our salaries were published on the internet. So I was like, oh, magic. I'm young. I can do the internet. And really shifting from that mindset to more of a how does this benefit both of us for me to get what I want was instrumental. And I had a coach at the time for a weight loss group. So something completely separate who really helped me to get to that place. And when I was coming at it from that mindset, I actually was able to navigate a $65,000 raise in one conversation. So I was like, Oh, Hmm, maybe this works. And I ended up leaving that job ultimately anyway, because the pay was not the only concern, but Really having that skill set and being curious about it helped me to be able to translate that into helping others because I certainly was not the only person I knew who had these problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a great transition to take something that that's so important to you and then be able to help others. It's awesome that, that that's the route you took to get into negotiation. Experience can be a, a tough teacher sometimes, right? When we stumble on ourselves. Now, you spend a lot of time, as you said, helping physicians negotiate compensation packages. You shared a little bit about some of kind of your own mistakes, but what is it that makes it so difficult for doctors, nurses, others to negotiate that first contract? And why is getting that first one correct so important for someone fresh out of residency or school? I think that to answer the first question, it's all mindset. So mindset, as you know, drives a lot of things. But we're trained in medical culture that you're a helping profession, which we are, and that's great. But I think the mix-up is associating helping with I have to be deprived of, associating helping with I can't have, I can't ask. And that leads to, I could go on for days, a lot of problems in medicine, some of which contribute to burnout and people leaving the field, which is a bigger, huge problem, which I'm hoping to help by this. But I think also there's this, I should be helping people so I can't ask for more money. That inability to separate what I'm doing for the patients, which is obviously why all of us are in these fields. You wouldn't do medicine any other reason. Like there's no reason to do this to yourself if that's not your goal. But I think being able to separate that from the compensation piece. So I can do that and I can be well-paid and treated like a person and in a culturally safe environment. And so I think separating the either or there and shifting to and, because the hierarchy of medicine, and y'all both have military backgrounds, so those are very hierarchical environments. The hierarchy of medicine is very much know your place, know your role, do what you're told, don't ask. 
And when you take that environment and shift it to kind of the compensation piece, you feel like, oh, I should be so thankful I have this job. Because all through training, you had to fight for that spot in medical school. You had to fight for that spot in that residency program, that fellowship, whatever. And to shift from that to all of a sudden you're an attending and you're now the talent, you're the person who they need as a hospital system, who they need as an organization to be able to take care of the patients, or in the case of nursing, you're the talent, you're the skill set. They can't run a hospital without you to take care of your patients. So shifting your mindset to, oh, they need me to be able to perform this skill that I can perform and I should be compensated for that. Because I promise you, your CEO is not sad that they're making what they're making. They're not sad that they're as administrators of the hospital system being compensated. So why should you, as the core element of that system, be sad that you're compensated? Yeah. And the impact on, on how long someone stays in the field and how long they practice, especially given the shortage we have right now in the medical field, uh, is a, such an incredible tie. I appreciate how you use and, right? It's possible to separate the care that you provide from a fair compensation. And the key word there being, and both are important. I'm curious, are the challenges you focus a lot with um, new female physicians and are the challenges that female physicians even more exasperated than their male counterparts? So I'm a little biased in this position just yeah. because that's who I work with. And as a female physician, I think there are certain barriers that are either from a socialization standpoint present or real actual systemic barriers that are a little bit different than our male counterparts. For example, I've never known a male physician to be like, oh, here's the nurse. They just walked in after you perform surgery on someone. I'm like, but I've consented you. I've followed you for an entire pregnancy and I just operated on you and you don't know my position in the team. Like, really? So I think there are some kind of barriers from a morale standpoint, because it's a little disheartening to be confused with other members in the team. Not that I don't think other members in the team perform valuable tasks, but this is the role that I'm fulfilling. And so there's some of that from a cultural standpoint. And I think also from a socialization, since we were little girls as female physicians and as women or people who identify as women, you're taught, like, don't rock the boat. You should be nice, sugar and spice and everything nice, right? Like you're taught all of those things as a little girl that isn't the same as how men are taught. So I have three older brothers, um, which is probably how I got good at negotiating. Because <laughs> I wasn't stronger. I was not bigger. So I had to be smarter because otherwise, like, death was certain. Um, and so my brothers were all like, oh, be aggressive. Go out there and play football. Go do these things. And they got all those messages where I got, like, that's not very ladylike. You shouldn't do that every time I was aggressive, because I think of the five of us, I'm the most naturally aggressive. <laughs> and so when I would display those characteristics, I was told, oh, well, that's not ladylike. My brothers weren't taught like, oh, that's not ladylike. So I think there are all those just kind of deeply ingrained cultural barriers that you get from the tiniest stages of being a human. I have two boy children and I try really hard not to do that. But there's that combined with just your position on the team not being recognized always the same. And I think medicine is also shifting. So we're at a little bit of a cusp in medicine where things are shifting a lot in the demographics of who's providing the care. And it's starting to become a lot more reflective of the people we're caring for, which is a great thing. But the box that we're being put in is not shifting quite as quickly as the demographics are. 
And so we're having more female physicians and you're going to have different needs, different roles. I mean, culture has not shifted so quickly in the last 50 years that your life looks completely different than it did at some point in the past when you may not have had the work responsibilities as well. And so the way medicine looks is not shifting as fast as the people shifting within it. And I think that's leading to a lot of attrition. I mean, I'm not even quite 40 yet, and I know several of my peers who are no longer practicing already. And if we can keep those people in medicine by designing a container that they can succeed in, that they can thrive in, to me, that seems like an essential investment. And I see negotiation as a pathway to do that. Yeah. Let me ask about a different, another group that you work with as well, which is the transitioning military medical professionals. Are there challenges that they face any different as they make that career shift or are they similar to other physicians you work with? Yeah, I think they're actually some of my favorite people to work with because most of the time, by the time they found me, they're like, hey, I've been paid this and I've been told this is your pay band for the last God knows how many years. I'm ready to get out there and get this done. So they tend to be a little bit more motivated to like apply the tools and yeah. get there because they're usually further in their career and they see that advantage. So they're not usually fresh finishing training. They're usually five, 10 years out and really looking to carve a job that they get to design how it looks because they've been in a position where they've not gotten to cho choose those things for, for a while. So I think from that standpoint, there's a little bit more of a recognition of, hey, this is my opportunity. I need to do these things. But similar to that hierarchical kind of mindset, culturation, I don't know if culturation is a word, but it is today. <laughs> I, li I like it. Um, <laughs> medicine, they're in a very subset niche culture too. And so I think breaking from the mold of these are my limitations, these are my options to I can choose how I want this to look is especially essential for them as well. And I fell into that a little bit just because of where I live. So I live in Augusta, Georgia, and there's a big army base here and they train medical professionals. And so I just happened to run into them in real life. Well, thanks. Thanks for the work with, with that group too. So, so necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Having recently gone through a transition last summer from, from the army, I know that they're very appreciative of that as well. So thank you. In your control, your contract program, you focus clients on three ideas, lead the conversation with confidence, negotiate with clarity and communicate value. Could you say a bit more about each of these and maybe how you could coach physicians to practice each one more successfully? Yeah, I think that I pick those things because they seem less intimidating. For a lot of physicians, I think if you say negotiate, it gives you that like, I'm about to take a test feeling where it's like icky in your belly and you just don't want to do it. And I think if you can shift the thought from I'm about to negotiate to I'm about to have a conversation, like that seems so much less of a barrier to overcome than I'm about to negotiate. And so for me, it's just physicians are great at having difficult conversations. I mean, we spend all day doing that. We talk to patients about really critical moments in their lives. That's something we're good at. I tell people terrible things all day long, and I can do that without blinking an eye. Not that I'm not affected, but I've got that skill set. So I think if you can take people who already recognize that skill set and tell them, hey, it's just a conversation, then you can kind of show them they're not as ill-equipped as they think they are, that they do have some skills that they already know, that they already have, that they can apply to this. Because most physicians are busy. They don't have time to like go take a semester-long course in something to accomplish one task. 
which is getting a job that works for them. They want to be out there physicianing. And in order for them to do that and to do what they do best, they need to see what skills they already have so they can just shift that mindset piece. And I think focusing on the conversation helps with that too. The second piece in really like focusing on, and I'm off my website too, so I'm looking at tangent a little bit, but focusing (laughs) on communicating clearly and having their values. I think a lot of that's just really focusing on what do I want? What are my values? And that shifts to the selfish portion of this for me that I want them to continue practicing. I want there to be really highly qualified people who are good at what they do to take care of me as I'm getting older and needing more healthcare services, because I'm not always going to be my age. I'm certainly not 25 anymore. And so my health needs are evolving. The people I love are needing healthcare professionals. I want people who are good at what they do to continue to do it. And I think that kind of circling back to what we talked about earlier, if the job is built in such a way that it is a container that is molded to you instead of a container you're squishing yourself to be in, you're going to be able to do it longer. You're going to be able to do it from a healthier place. Because I will tell you, having been burnt out, I didn't show up for my patients the same way I can when I'm not burned out when I was. Now, I made good medical choices and I made good care plans for them. But as a human, because you're connecting with people at very critical moments in their lives, I was not able to connect to those patients the same way I can when I'm in a good space for me. And so I want people who are able to do what they do best from a good space so that they can do it at the highest level they can do it and deliver that care at that highest level. And to do that, they have to have supportive environments. And that's going to look different for everybody. And so you have to advocate for it for yourself because nobody else knows what's best for you. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we understand what you're getting at. And I think it's an interesting concept, which is this isn't simply a transactional event. This has longer implications for the service and the, even the, the motivation that a physician's going to feel as they, as they provide that service. You discuss mindset. You've mentioned it a couple times now. I know you're a big one into pre-negotiation preparation. Uh, I've seen that in your work. Also, the importance of doing post-negotiation reviews. Obviously, Nolan and I, as former military folks, love both those things uh, in terms of getting well-prepared and then, and then the, the good old-fashioned after-action review or, or figuring things out. You know, I, I was going to ask you why these things are so critical. I was wondering if I gave you a um, maybe a scenario, though, maybe you could talk through um, how you might coach someone in this scenario. So a little bit of a, of a loop here throwing you, but I had a colleague recently just talk to me in passing doctor, general hospitalist, part of a group of about 30 hospital physicians that were renegotiating their contract with the, the hospital administration. And the administration o- opened with a well below fair market value offer. Enough that it felt insulting, hurtful, and even prompted people to start polishing up the CVs and getting ready to look elsewhere. Getting ready for the next piece of that, how would you coach them when it comes to that, those hospital doctors? How would you to, to respond when it comes to whether it's preparation for the next piece, their mindset? What would you, what would you tell them? I think in that case, to start off, you have to recognize why you're valuable. Like what value you provide that the hospital needs because hospital admin and I practice in corporate America as well. Hospital administration are going to come with, this is what we're going to give you. This is what you should take. 
because they're running a business, they have a bottom line, the more they can shrink your portion, the more they have to put in other places where squeaky wheels may be louder. So I can't fault them for that necessarily. I mean, I do, but that's, um, <laughs> that's where they're probably going to come from. And so if they start off there, your responsibility as the physician or the group of physicians who are negotiating is to recognize first, this is why I'm valuable to the system. Because let me tell you, you can't find 30 hospitalists in five minutes. You certainly can't do it in any reasonable from a care perspective time. So if all 30 of y'all walk, they are up a creek without a paddle. And that is a value to that system beyond just the value you provide to your patients. And so I think recognizing that you are not powerless in this conversation, because I think it's very easy when someone who is your employer comes and says, this is what we're going to pay you to feel like I don't have a choice, but to take that. And you do, you always have a choice. There are plenty of places that would love to have you as a hospitalist. We are in a healthcare professional shortage, not a hospital shortage. I mean, there's some of that too, but they need you more than you need them. You just have to be willing to kind of see that. <laughs> so I think the first step is recognizing, especially in a group dynamic like that, how powerful you actually are. The second piece is knowing what fair market value is. So I see a lot of physicians that have absolutely no idea what they should be making. And the companies that solicit this data do a really good job of trying to keep that secret because the dirty little secret in all of this is that the companies provide that data for free typically to hospital systems if they contribute to the data. And so your administrator has that data. If I go to negotiate with my administrator, they already have the MGMA and there are several organizations and they all have various pros and cons, but they're similar enough. They have that data in front of them to know what is fair market value for me because they're highly invested in that for two reasons. One is they want to pay me as little as they can to help their profit margins. I work in for-profit medicine. The second though, is they have some actual consequences if they overpay me. So there are Stark laws and all sorts of anti-kickback statutes, which we won't get into the weeds, but there are legal ramifications for them if they pay me in excess of fair market value. So for them, it's really, really, really comfortable to underpay me because then they're not at risk at all. And so they're going to have that data. So I should too. And there's some free data out there that's really helpful. Talking to peers is really helpful. Having multiple job offers to kind of know what you can actually get in your community, what people are offering is helpful. But that's just a jumping off point. So you need to have some of that. Or you need to find somebody like me who can facilitate getting you that data directly because I purchase it with the kind of crowdsourcing mentality of I can charge little snippets and be able to get it to multiple people. And that way everybody has what they need to start off. So beyond recognizing your value, you have to know what fair market value is because your value as a human and your value as somebody performing a service are different. And I think you have to be able to separate those two things. So to do that, you have to know what should I be, be being paid for what I'm offering because medicine is really wide even within specialties. So you can find a pediatrician making 150,000 a year. You can find a pediatrician making 300,000 a year. You can find an orthopedic surgeon who may be making a million dollars a year. So there's a wide range depending on what you do and where you do it and how you've advocated for yourself of what different roles in physicians are being paid. And so you have to know kind of what your pay band expectations should be before you even know to say this is insulting. I mean, some things are so blatantly insulting, you can just tell. But most of the time, it's just feasible enough that you feel icky about it, but it doesn't feel like I can't 
have this job. Like I have to walk because this is so insane that why would I even work? Yeah. No, I like, I saw you, you, and you just mentioned it, that you, this is an important piece is sharing the data and looking at the band and going in very well informed. You've talked about this idea of fairness quite a bit um, on your podcast and, and you kind of, if I understand it right, you, you distinguish a little bit between what's equitable versus what's equal. Equal. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think the big thing between equal and equity is equal is everybody's paid the same. And you'll see that more often in roles like a hospitalist. So some of the more shift work roles in medicine, which can I just say is a big advancement we've made in the last 10, 20 years to help fit jobs that more fit the evolving workforce, because these shift work type jobs allow you to have a life outside of medicine, which ta-da is going to help you to stay in medicine because we are people too, who have hopes, dreams, lives, families. So I think that some of those roles are more prone to vary. This is what we pay. This is what we pay per hour. Um, emergency medicine has a lot of that. Hospitalist jobs have a lot of that. A lot of the shift work type positions are more, this is what we're going to pay for this. And we pay everybody the same. So that looks very equal. And it may be. So it may be, this is what we pay that this, this is the same. Where it can be not equitable is, for example, in an emergency room setting, you can be paid the same dollars per unit of work. So we have something called RVUs, which are units of work, and you can be paid the same per unit of work as somebody else. And so you would think, oh, that's really fair. Like they're paid the same for each unit of work. So if they work more, then they get paid more. Well, how those units are ascribed to different services may not be equal. There already may be bias built into the system. For example, a pelvic exam is time intensive, very sensitive, takes a little bit of time to do because you can't just walk in and just say hi and do it. So something like that is valued less in a unit system than say stitching up a cut on your arm, which you don't have to like walk in and be very sensitive about. It's like, okay, here's your arm. Let me stitch it up. Thanks. And so if the female physician, for example, is always being asked to do the pelvic exams because, oh, you're a woman, you're going to understand better. And the male physician is getting to sew up all the lacerations. Now you have inequity, even though they're paid equally for each of those tasks. So it's subtle. It can sneak in there, but there can be a lot of inequity, even in an equal system. That's an awesome point. And thank you for clarifying between those two. Beyond salary, though, what are some other things that physicians might negotiate around what they sometimes don't think about, such as time to conduct research or teach, remote work, additional training, fellowship opportunities, those kinds of things? All of those things. And that's what's so wonderful. And that's why this is very individual. So you have to really take time to decide what is your priority? What do you want out of this? What would be a fulfilling career for you? Because how that looks for me may be very different than how it looks for you. How it looks for me today is very different than how it looked for me four years ago. And so that evolves per person and it evolves over time and that's okay. But you just need to be able to identify like what are the pieces of the job that are important to me? Because that's going to help you negotiate for the things you want that are going to lead you to success so that you stay in that job, which is my ultimate goal if we haven't gotten a message here. <laughs> so... If you want a different schedule, for example, so for me, I don't work Friday clinically. Friday is for my business. This is when I focus on negotiations and clients and things that aren't clinical medicine. So I was not willing to work five days a week. I'm by myself in my practice. So my office is closed on Fridays. My employer would love to open my office on Fridays because they're in the business of providing a fee-for-service kind of care model. 
And that's okay. They can love that. But they also want me to stay. They want me there the other four days. And my ability to show up those other four days, I know as a person is contingent on me having Friday to be able to do my business and Saturday and Sunday to be able to recharge as a human. And so for me, that was very non-negotiable. And obviously they would love for me to work the five days a week. Obviously I don't want to work the five days a week. And so that's a negotiation. That was something I had to advocate for fairly strongly because our goals were aligned on a global level, but not on that specific detail. Schedule is a huge thing that I spend a lot of time talking to female physicians about how to negotiate for their time. Because I always think of it as a hierarchy. There's like energy, which is to me the most valuable thing, because we all know you can spend two hours doing one thing and two hours doing another thing, and they don't deplete you the same way. And so doing the things you love, and this is where like things like teaching or learning another skill set, those type of things fall in that energy bucket. Because if you really thrive off teaching, you're not going to be happy in an academic job where because you're the junior faculty member, you're seeing all the patients and someone else is doing the more teaching type effort. So you have to be able to advocate for that. I need 0.2 FTE, which is how we call our salary distributions, full-time equivalents. I need one day a week or 0.2 to be able to teach and to be able to develop curriculum and to be able to do these things so that I can be effective and happy in my job. Because if you don't advocate for that, what happens is because that's a core value for you, you're going to do it anyway in your free time. And then all of a sudden you're working too much and you're burned out and you want to quit and da-da-da-da-da-da. And then you're no good to anyone, certainly not yourself. And so salary is big, but schedule, I think, is the kind of cat's meow or the mecca of what people are advocating for in their physician negotiations. And then little things. If a scribe, a scribe is a big popular thing right now to advocate for, for a lot of my physicians. Doctors hate paperwork. I think most people do, but like we want to be interacting with patients, taking care of patients, providing clinical skills to people, we do not want to be doing paperwork. And so much of my job is paperwork. And same for most physicians and really nurses, everybody on the healthcare team. There's so much charting. If you can advocate for a scribe, which is somebody who writes down in the chart the things that are happening that you're saying, so that you don't have to do that piece, that is really valuable to a doctor who wants to just interact with their patients and connect with people. And so that may be a small financial ask. I don't know what they go for, but it's somewhere in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range. And you may be able to be more profitable for the system because you can see a few more patients a day if somebody else is doing the paperwork piece for you to a certain degree. And that may be really valuable to you so that your energy is preserved because you're spending more time taking care of people and less time punching numbers on a keyboard. And so little things like that, you just have to be really deliberate about In my daily life, what are the things I need? In a day as a physician in my job, what are the things that really irk me and drive me crazy? How can I get rid of those or eliminate them as much as possible? And what are the things that really energize me? How do I maximize that? And really starting from that kind of space of what energizes me, what doesn't, and then going from there to time to money, I think is a really effective way for you to design a job that makes you happy. Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of the show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already done so. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. 
If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.